0: you have God's Word, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 5, and the title of tonight's sermon is The Heavenly Priestly Activity of Christ. The Heavenly Priestly Activity of Christ. And we will be reading from verse 1 to verse 5. And may God plant His, His eternal Word into our souls. Now the main point And what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also has something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things just as Moses was warned by by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your holy word and for the special way that you reveal your word to us today. For in these last days, you have spoken to us in your Son, and confirmed your word to us by your Spirit. So Spirit of God, open the eyes of our hearts, make our hearts ready to receive your word, and sanctify us in your truth, for your word is truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now with the conclusion of chapter 7 in the epistle of Hebrews, we have completed the first major movement of Jesus Christ as the unique and great high priest. We've taken some time to understand the one-of-a-kind high priest who we learned is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, and who is like the high priest continually, unlike the Levitical order, but according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, chapter 8, the second major movement begins. From chapter 8 all the way down to chapter 10, verse 18, we have an exposition of the effective sacrifice of the Son as the high priest and forms, as one commentator states, the heart of the Christological exposition of Hebrews. Now, as we continue to consider the surpassing glory of Christ's heavenly priesthood, we are tempted to think, that all of the detailed writing on Christ's heavenly priesthood is too lofty and esoteric. And we are tempted to ask, what does this all have to do with living on Monday? Now, even though this attitude is not surprising in our pragmatic, self-help, quick-solution-oriented culture that we live in today, the question misses the essential point of Hebrews. The main point of Hebrews, which, by the way, is a major point of all Christian theology— is that without sound doctrine, there can be no genuine Christian living. We'll have to wait to the middle of chapter 10 until the author of Hebrews gets very practical in Christian living, and the author is not rushing to get there because he wants the doctrine of the priesthood of Christ to be thoroughly digested and understood and meditated upon in all facets so that it will make us strong in the faith. And so without this effort, To grow in our understanding of the doctrine of Christ's priesthood, he knows how easily his readers were tempted to go back to Judaism. And so here we must consider the situation that the Hebrews found themselves in. Let's remind ourselves the original context of the Hebrews. They would have been disinherited. They would have suffered, as the Apostle Paul says, the loss of all things. Put yourself in their shoes. You are a solid, law-abiding citizen of Fremont, San Jose, San Ramon, or wherever. But because of your commitment to Jesus Christ, you are disinherited. What does that look like? You are barred from society. You are barred from clubs, networks, social friendships. You don't even get invited to your children's classmates' birthday parties because of your stand for Christ. You are excommunicated from your family and society. In addition to this, you are now closed to the place of worship that you attended when you were a child. You didn't realize how much the services, the people, the rituals, and all the ceremonies defined your identity, and you didn't realize it until you were no longer allowed to enter that place of worship, and now you are meeting in someone's house with a small group of people. All the things that you used to enjoy that were once so meaningful to you, now we're all gone. That was the situation of the readers of Hebrew. Something drastically changed in the place of worship. No longer was their worship marked by the grandeur of the temple, the mass choir and all of the rituals and the pageantry. No longer did they catch sight of the high priest, who was the only man allowed once a year on the Day of Atonement to enter the sacred inner chamber of the temple to seek God's forgiveness for the people. No longer did they wait for the high priest to reappear and raise his hands in those memorable comforting words of the ironic blessing assuring them of the lord's blessing and peace this was all gone for them because they had committed to follow christ and so if you were one of the original readers of hebrews imagine the temptation to turn back on christ to turn back to their old religion which was more visible to them more palpable and seemingly more comforting i thank god that it doesn't happen very often here at pillar but every now and then you hear of someone's resignation letter being read from this church and you know enough to know that where they are going is a place where christ is not preached and your heart aches for them and if you're close to that person that is leaving you know what has been happening that the priority of worshiping Christ and knowing him has been slowly taking a back seat, while worldly ambition and fleeting concerns have become the driving force in their lives. And you see, these things were happening to the people in Hebrews. And so the author essentially asks, don't you see what is really important? Don't you see that you are looking at things from the wrong perspective? And so he says, get your eyes off of temples and physical priests and worldly comforts and fix your eyes on Jesus. He's already said so much about Jesus to encourage them, that they have a sympathetic and merciful high priest, that they have a great high priest who is able to save us to the uttermost. And what the author is really saying to them is that what will keep you persevering in the faith is catching a glimpse of the greatness of Christ And why it is to have such an amazing high priest. And when you catch a glimpse of the greatness of Jesus Christ, you have not lost. You have gained. You do not have less. less. You have more. Christ has done everything generations of high priests could not do. They were only shadows. But Christ is the reality. And in our attempts to catch a greater glimpse of Jesus Christ, we'll see in chapter 8, the heavenly priestly activity of Christ. And then in the following two weeks, we're going to see Christ as the mediator of a new and better covenant. Now, there are two major questions I'd like to answer that will serve for our outline this evening. Firstly, where Jesus exercises his priestly ministry. And secondly, what is Jesus's heavenly priestly activity? And so we want to ask first, where Jesus exercises his priestly Ministry. He tells us right at the beginning where Jesus exercises his ministry. Look at verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. Now, don't you love it when preachers say, Now, by the way, this is the main point. Thank you. I do need those cliff notes very much. Well, here they are. In case you missed the whole point of what I just said in chapter 7, this is the main point. We have such a high priest who has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne. Of the majesty in the heavens. This reminds us of what the author said from the very beginning of the letter in chapter 1 verse 3. That when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This speaks of his royal kingship. Jesus is now ruling and reigning from the throne on high in his kingly office as head over all things to his body, the church. But Christ is a priest upon his throne. And the author will not let us forget that Jesus is the king priest where his kingship is not only marked by ruling, but one of service. Look at verse 2. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. And what the author is concerned about here is the place of the present ministry of Jesus our high priest. Our Lord ministers in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle. Now, if we were to have a word association and say true, we would say the opposite of true is false. But the opposite of true in this context is imitation. The opposite of true in this passage is shadow. And what the author is saying to those Hebrew readers who were tempted to go back to the temple, the priest, is that the ministry of our Lord, the great high priest, is so much better and superior than the ministry of priests because Jesus ministers in the real sanctuary. They ministered in man-made copies. Now, this is rather remarkable because you need to understand that for a first century Jew, the tabernacle of God was the place where earth touched heaven. It was the first earthly residence for God to dwell in. That is what the Hebrew word tabernacle comes from. It means to dwell. And so one of the main things that God wanted his people to see was that the tabernacle was God's dwelling place. God said to Moses very clearly in Exodus 25 verse 8, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Heaven is where God is. And so when God came to live with his people, he brought heaven down with him. This is confirmed by the way the tabernacle was made. And of course, you are well aware that the heart of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. And there in the innermost sanctuary, the Lord was said to sit enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was there to represent God's throne. The figures on its cover represented the cherubim. God's royal attendants, the mysterious winged creatures who stand guard in the throne room of heaven. There were more cherubim on the curtains, their images skillfully woven into the walls and the veil of the tabernacle. These cherubims, in a symbolic way, guarded the way to God. And it was all to communicate the presence of God and the supreme holiness of God. As Old Testament scholar Tremper Logman writes in his book on Old Testament worship, the symbolism of the entire structure revolved around one central idea. The holy God was present in the midst of the camp. Moreover, friends, the tabernacle's meaning was communicated in part by the materials that was used for its construction. Now, Bible scholars have different opinions about all the symbolisms of the tabernacle, but one thing is crystal clear. The closer one came to the center of the tabernacle, the more precious the materials became. Bronze was used for the post of the outmost curtain. But bronze gave way to silver and then to gold and then ultimately to fine gold used predominantly for the furniture in the Holy of Holies. This was to show that God was at the center. And so when the high priest went into the temple, into the Holy of Holies once a year, when he would make a sacrifice for the people in the great day of atonement for the sins of the people, and as he approached the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim that stood as guards and their wings stretched out to one another so that they touched the the top, they knew that they were going into the greatest symbol they had of the presence of God. But the point that the author makes in Hebrews is that great as those symbolisms were of the sanctuary, it was just a copy. It was just an imitation. Moses was told, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The tabernacle were simply imitations of the true, they were copies and shadows of the heavenly things. Jesus Christ, by contrast, is the real thing, you see. Jesus, you see, is ministering not in a man made sanctuary. Jesus is a minister before the throne of the Almighty God in the real sanctuary, the sanctuary that the Lord pitched and not man. I want you to turn over to Hebrews 9 24. Let's take a sneak peek into that chapter where it will greater detail spell out the sanctuary of God. It says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear. In the presence of God for us. The sanctuary in the wilderness was but a shadow. The sanctuary where Christ ministers now in heaven is the reality. It's much like uh, those days that we were doing live streaming for our church during COVID. I remember when we were first live streaming. I think it was March of 2020. And thinking to myself how thankful I am of YouTube. YouTube is great, you know. Because although we are all in our own homes, scattered across the Bay Area, that on Sunday afternoon I can turn on the television or my laptop and I can see Pastor Minjay singing songs, Pastor Eric preaching, I was able to see them and I was able to hear them. Now that is what is pretty remarkable. But it's not quite the same thing as being presently physically with them, isn't it? We were looking at a copy. We were seeing a picture Don't you prefer being present in the worship service and feeling the spit of the pastor preaching? Namely me. (laughs) The hearing of the singing from your fellow brothers and sisters standing right next to you. And of course, we realize that the screen cannot hold your hand and pray for you on your deathbed. There are severe limitations to what a picture can do. So, while we were looking at pastors conducting the live stream service on our iPad and television, we know that there's something better than that. That's the real. And so, the author is saying, Why would you want to return to the copy? Don't look to anything but Jesus. Don't look to the copy of Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is the real thing. And, my unbelieving friends, if you are here, in this world, we walk in shadows. Somewhere there's a reality. And the great problem in life is how we pass from this world of shadows to the other world of realities. And the er- earthly priesthood are only copies and shadows that cannot lead people into the reality. And only Jesus, and only Jesus can lead us into the presence of God. Only Jesus, you see, can cleanse our conscience. Only he can offer the once for all sacrifice by his own blood. You see, the longer that we live without Christ, the longer we are going to be frustrated in a world of shadows. There will always be an empty void in our hearts. That is why you must repent and trust in Jesus Christ alone for what he did on the cross and by his resurrection because only he can lead you out of the frustrating imitations in this world into the all-satisfying real. This is the reason why Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And so the question arises, what is this priestly, high priestly activity in the heavenlies? Now most Christians are familiar with the finished work of Christ. That Christ finished the priestly work of atonement on earth is an emphatic point made by the author of Hebrews and one that we heard from Pastor Minjay last week in chapter 7, verse 27. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And what Jesus is famous saying on the cross, it is finished. We understand that there is a finality on the once for all sacrifice of Jesus' priestly work. But the author of Hebrews helps us to understand that although Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, having finished his atoning work, he's still doing something. He now undertakes his unfinished work in heaven. The task in which Jesus engages himself as a high priest is to appear before his Father on behalf of his elect. And since our Lord serves now in heaven in the true tabernacle We are led to ask the question, what is Jesus doing there? And Jesus' present ministry in heaven is undoubtedly intercession. To intercede basically means to plead on behalf of another. This is what Christ is doing in heaven at the present moment. Now just how important is Christ's ministry of intercession? The revered professor of Westminster Seminary, John Murray, wrote, That the security of salvation is bound up with this intercession. And outside of his intercession, we must say that there is no salvation. Mark Jones too, a popular theologian in our day, has echoed Murray's remarks in writing, Christ's work for his people depends in the final analysis upon his intercession. Without it, there is no salvation. And in order to understand this precious truth, of Christ's intercession will take the rest of the evening to consider its necessity, its manner, and its efficacy. So first, its necessity. That intercession is the present ministry of Jesus is made clear in our text, especially in verse 4. It says, now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The writer impresses on us that Christ was not like the earthly priest of the Levitical order who offered sacrifices in accordance with the Mosaic law. Jesus, the writer is stating, is ministering in the true tabernacle in heaven. And in order for Christ to sit beside the majestic Father in the true tabernacle and fulfill his priestly role, he could not remain on the earth. He had to ascend to heaven as a high priest for us. His ministry is superior to the earthly. Then track the argument of the author. He said that the old Levitical priesthood only served as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. They were nothing more than a copy, we learned. The real and original is heaven itself, which tells us that Christ is the real, and he continues his superior ministry of which the old priesthood were only copies of. The writer's purpose in reminding the readers and quoting Exodus twenty-five forty where god instructs moses about the tabernacle is not to reduce the glory of the shadow but actually to enhance the glory of its substance it's much like studying the sun from in a picture photography in many ways to try to look and study the sun directly can be difficult because of its unbearing glory but by studying the picture the photography at the figure of the sun it can give you a greater understanding an appreciation of the glory of the sun itself. So it is with the divine truths of God and the copies of the shadows that the author speaks of. So friends, what was it that we read in Leviticus 16 on the day of atonement? We see how the high priest, once a year, entered into the Holy of Holies, but he was not able to come to the Holy of Holies until he had first offered a sacrifice for himself and for the people. And notice, this sacrifice was done Outside of the Holy of Holies. But that is not all we see that the high priest did. When the high priest had killed the sacrifice, he then entered inside the Holy of Holies with the blood and sprinkled upon the mercy seat and burned incense. You see, there were two parts to the task of the high priest. One was to offer the sacrifice. And the second was the presentation of the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, with prayer and intercession unto God in order for God to accept the sacrifice on behalf of the people. And notice, the sacrifice was done outside of the Holy of Holies, but the intercession and presentation of the offering was done inside the Holy of Holies. Now I want you to turn to Hebrews 13, 11 and 12, and what is it that we read? For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered where? Outside the gate. Now turn back to Hebrews 9. Having shed his blood outside the city, in verse 12 of chapter 9, we read that Jesus carried his blood where he entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption christ took his very own blood to the very throne of god in heaven he presents himself as the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world before the father and there as christ sits at the right hand of god appearing before almighty god for us in the words of the puritan thomas Goodwin. He prays in the force of that blood. The doctrine of the intercession of Christ is what theologians have called the applying cause of our salvation. In other words, although the sacrifice of Christ is perfect, and by His atoning blood, He merited salvation, His intercession remains necessary to apply salvation to us so that we would be possessors of all spiritual blessings. As one Scottish theologian, William Milligan, wrote, he now pleads the cause of his people with all prevailing intercession on their behalf. He applies to them the work which he accomplished upon earth, and as one whom the Father heareth always, he obtains for them the measure of grace which they require until at last they are perfected in glory. Now, here, this is the main point. I'm, I'm going to borrow the, the author of Hebrews. Here's the main point we must be clear that the intercessory ministry of the high priest must never be divorced from propitiation. Okay, Intercession is based upon the atonement. The atonement of Christ provides the basis for him to continue his intercessory work in heaven in applying salvation to us. Now let me just point out a couple of verses to show this to you. Right here in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we read of Jesus as our high priest. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The next two verses clearly show the close relationship of atonement and intercession. He is able to intercede for us because, as the writer goes on to say, that we have such a high priest as the one who offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice. We see both atonement and intercession in the Apostle John, 1 John 2.2. 2. Where he calls Jesus Christ a propitiation of our sins. But what does John say of Jesus prior to this? Pastor Eric just quoted this in the assurance of pardon. He calls Jesus our advocate. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is referring to his intercession. Jesus Christ can only be our advocate before the Father because he is appropriation for our sins. But that intercession is based upon the atonement. Also appears in one of Paul's letters in Romans 8 verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? In this great chapter where the apostle Paul champions the full security of God's people where nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, he asks, who is the one who condemns? And he answers, Christ Jesus. is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. Christ is our great high priest, our representative who pleads on our behalf, his very presence in heaven is in itself an intercession because it's a reminder of his perfect, obedient sacrifice for sin. This is the necessity of the intercession of Christ. Christ is so committed to you. He is so concerned about your assurance that it is expressed in a prayer on your behalf and praying that you will be more than conquerors in every engagement with all of your adversaries. Now we do see something of this in Jesus' earthly life, don't we? At the Last Supper, Jesus said to Simon Peter in anticipation of his threefold denial, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And so where is our confidence in terms of our assurance of believers? I hope it isn't the confidence that mirrors the arrogance of Peter. Never, Lord, I will never fall away but that our confidence would rest on the promise of Jesus, I will pray for you. And our great high priest who ascended into the heavens and who sits at God's right hand, he still does for his people at the right hand of God what he did for Peter on earth. Beloved, when you, uh, when you consider the kingly office of Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that in his kingly role, his goal is, is to subdue all enemies to the very last man. And Christ wouldn't be the perfect king if he left even one enemy unconquered. The same holds true in his priestly office. Jesus Christ would not be a perfect high priest if but one soul of the elect, if but one soul in which he intercedes for were left unsaved. You see, salvation spans from election to glorification from eternity past to eternity future. But here we must prize that Christ's intercession for us is necessary to save us to the utmost. Because without it, there is no salvation. Let us move on to consider the manner in which he intercedes. How, in what manner does Christ intercede for us? Not by falling upon his knees. Like he prayed in the days of his flesh, Hebrews 5, 7 tells us, with loud cries and tears. No, 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 dear friends, that was Christ's prayer and his humiliation. His intercession now consists in his exaltation, sitting at the right hand of God of the Father in the true sanctuary with his blood, which Hebrews 12, 24 tells us speaks better than the blood of Abel. And furthermore, his blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. For that matter, any sacrifice of bulls and goats, because Jesus Christ is our surety. We learn that a surety is a guarantor. Much like in the ancient days where the father of a bride would approve to the marriage of his daughter and he would give a legal document that says that he is the surety of the payment of the aforesaid dowry. In other words, the father is good for it. And Jesus is the guarantor of the payment. And so we learn that Jesus has become the guarantee, the surety of a better covenant. But then follow the logic of Christ as our surety from the author of Hebrews. He goes on to say that since Christ has become our surety, verse 25, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This means, beloved, that Jesus does not stand before the throne as a friend who speaks on behalf of his people. The best of our friends may speak some good to us on our behalf and defend us in some matters, but in the eternal matters, where sin marks us out to a holy God, I need someone infinitely better than any friend. I need a surety. I need someone who has fully paid for my sin. And Jesus stands as a surety, and he pleads for me. You know, there is a great line that comes from Charles Wesley's wonderful hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise. And it says, before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. I'm reminded of that beautiful picture of the high priest in the Old Testament. That when he was to offer a sweet smelling incense before the Lord in the tabernacle. In the high priest's breastplate, when he entered into the presence of the Lord, were 12 gems on a golden plate on which were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And each time the high priest went into the presence of the Lord, he would carry these gems with him, with the people of God, as it were, on his heart. And so Christ, our great high priest, passed into the heavens. And when he intercedes to us on behalf of the Father, he bore our names in his heart. And he goes to God like the jewels on the heart of a high priest. Before the throne my surety stands, my name is written on his heart. You see, there is no Christian, there is no Christian alive today who has not had Christ mention his or her name to the Father. Indeed, beloved, if you are a Christian today, it is precisely because Christ has presented your name to God the Father. Oh, but we cannot stop there in speaking of the manner of Christ's intercession. Wonderful as it is to know Christ who intercedes as my surety. More wonderful is that Christ always lives. He always lives to intercede. Do you realize the preciousness of this truth? That he always lives to intercede for us. It means that once Christ has undertaken your cause, Once he has pleaded your name in his prayers, he'll never leave you out. To quote Goodwin again, he writes, men have been cast out of good and holy men's prayers as Saul out of Samuel's and the people of Israel out of Jeremiah's, but never out of Christ's prayers. The smoke of his incense ascends forever and he will intercede to the utmost. Christ lives to perform this work. This is now the business of his life, a minister of the true tabernacle, to always intercede our name as our surety. But moving on from the manner of Christ's intercession, we want to lastly consider the last element of Christ's intercession, and that is its efficacy. Now there are many things that we can point to, to the efficacy of Christ's intercession. In fact, we've already laid out many reasons, but The one reason that stands above all others for the efficacy of Jesus' intercession is that the person of Jesus is none other than the beloved Son of God. Christ intercedes not only in the virtue and the strength of his death and blood, but also in the strength of his relationship as the perfect Son to the Father. And beloved, how effective must the intercession of such a son be who is the express image of his father who is co-equal with the father? How can such an intercessor possibly be rejected? Now Christ often says that he is one with the father and his father to deny him anything. He must then deny himself, which God can never do. And so the Lord Jesus prays as one whose request cannot be denied. He says in John 11, 42 I know that you always hear me. Jesus can say this because the Apostle Paul calls him the beloved in Ephesians 1.6. You know, all the kings of Israel, they all pointed to the perfect king in Jesus Christ. And we remember that King Solomon was called the beloved of God, 2 Samuel 12.24. And his name was called Jedediah, which means the beloved of the Lord. And to show how beloved Solomon was, when Solomon first came into his kingdom, God approached him and he said, ask for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Well, how much more beloved is Jesus the Son of God? I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Now we see this in this messianic psalm, It speaks of the royal kingship of Jesus, whom God has installed as my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And after declaring to him the words that we've already heard from in Hebrews, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And to show how beloved this son is, the father then says to his son, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you see the efficacy of Jesus' intercession lay in his relationship to God as the beloved son. And not only to Christ being the son of God, but also of a gracious father. We are never to think of Jesus pleading on behalf of us to a reluctant father who is stingy with his grace. And will not move an inch towards us unless his son comes begging for us. No, dear friends, just as the father so loved the world that he sent his son to die for sinners, so the father's love is the fountain of Christ's intercession. This is why in Psalm 2, the father says to the son, ask of me and I will surely give you the nation. What then does the son ask for in heaven? I want you to turn to John 17. John 17. And what is called the high priestly prayer. We have an example of the kind of intercessory prayer that Jesus makes at the right hand of God. Now this prayer is worth reading in full and slowly and meditatively, but just a sample of few. I want you to look at verse 11. Jesus prays, I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Go down to verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 24. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me Be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. It is hard to conceive of more appropriate prayers for the people of God. For what we need in this world. Than these petitions from the intercession of Christ. I want you to turn to another example. Go to John 14, 16. John 14, 16 where Jesus prayed. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. Notice His prayer, I will. Future tense. The giving of another helper is the Holy Spirit reversed specifically to Pentecost in Acts 2. And where was Jesus when the Holy Spirit came down upon the church in Acts 2? Seated at the right hand of God. Where surely Jesus prayed for the Spirit to abide with us and to be with us forever. You see, such is the efficacy of intercession that it's a petition that cannot be denied because it comes from a beloved Son to a gracious Father who has sent the Holy Spirit so that we can commune with Him. the intercession of Christ is what He does for His people in the sanctuary. My exhortation to you tonight is to think much of a living Savior. Think much of the heavenly priestly activity of Jesus Christ. It has been well said by John Owen that it is generally acknowledged that sinners cannot be saved without the death of Christ, but that believers cannot be saved without the life of Christ following it is not so much considered. Christians dwell with joy and pleasure on the thoughts of his death, but hardly think much of the life which what Christ is doing now for us. It was a Scottish Presbyterian, Robert Murray McShane, who dwelt much on the intercession of Christ and the effect that it had upon his soul and it stated in these memorable words, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So reflect much On Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. Ministering in a true tabernacle. Reflect much on him. Presenting his own blood before the Father on our behalf. Presenting our names before the Father. Dwell on the truth. That he not only presents our names before the Father. But he sends down his Holy Spirit. To sanctify and to guide and to bless us. Bear in mind what a sweet comforting truth this is to you. Especially in those times of despair. And trials. And tribulations where there is no difficulty, where Christ does not see, nor in any danger from which he cannot save, no guilt where Christ cannot cleanse, and no prayers of his where God will not grant. I was at a member's grandfather funeral last night. I was so moved and encouraged by this funeral because it spoke of God's grace in this man whom God saved. And through the faithfulness of his man, His children and his grandchildren all came to faith in Christ. Indeed, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. And it made me think of Stephen, who in Acts 7.55 was full of the Holy Spirit, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now that Jesus was spoken of in Acts 7.55 as standing and not sitting, when Stephen saw him, is quite striking. Because even in Hebrews 8, one we see Jesus who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Why does it say of Stephen that Jesus was standing? In one sense, we can see that Stephen stood up for Christ. He held fast to his confession, and as a result, Jesus stood for Stephen. And Matthew 10, 20, 32, 33 was fulfilled. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who was in heaven. So in one sense, Jesus stood for Stephen because Stephen stood for him. But in another sense, we can say that Stephen was able to stand for Jesus because Christ had prayed for Stephen and supplied him with the grace that he needed. And we know that Stephen was stoned and he died. But we must also remember Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17 It was answered, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Beloved, whatever Jesus asked for, he receives. And he asked for Stephen to be with him in heaven. And so Jesus stood welcoming Stephen home. And so it is with all of our loved ones who have died in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to that intercession of Christ. That we praise and rejoice. Let's pray together. Our great and perfect high priest, thank you for being our surety. Thank you for praying for us now. Thank you that you mention our names before your Father and our Heavenly Father. It is because you pray for us that we are able to stand victorious in this life until You will carry us up home into our home in heaven, where You are seated now in the true sanctuary. We praise You much for what You are doing now, and we pray that we would dwell much on the living Savior, and we pray that our eyes will continue looking upon Christ, who is the real and not a copy. We give you praise for this worship service and we ask that you would bless us now as we sing together and respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.